Marilyn Lovell waits with her children, her neighbors, and we are told Apollo 11 astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Only the Lovell's eldest son, Jay, is absent as he holds vigil with his classmates at the St. John's Military Academy in Wisconsin. ABC News science editor, Jules Bergman. With a crippled command module and surviving by using the LEM systems, there can be no easy maneuver. And their LEM lifeboat is doing things and working longer than it was ever intended to. It's a race against time until splashdown. Okay, Jack, we're ready to see if the computer will accept a blink of the re-entry data now. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Multi Lena, uh, multi you know You're stupid minds. Stupid, stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The high court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can, and sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. This is episode 61, the first Monday of the month. And on the first Monday of the month, we look at a film that's based on a true story. It's what we refer to as, what's wrong with this picture? I will attempt to tell you what the film got right and what the film got wrong. On this show, I'm going to look at Ron Howard's classic film, Apollo 13, the story of three astronauts who have some trouble in their spacecraft. And we'll have Russell joining us a little later to tell you about some other films about space travel. Now, to be honest, there isn't a lot wrong with this film. There are a few things where the filmmakers took some artistic license, but in general, the film's pretty damn accurate. Truth be told, I just liked this film and wanted to talk about it, so let's get started. Quiet down. Quiet down. Let's stay cool, people. I thought for you younger kids, I'd give you a brief, and I mean very brief, history of the U.S. space program. I think it all began during World War II. The Nazis were developing the V-2 missile for the purposes of attacking Allied cities. The missile was powered by a liquid propellant rocket engine. Now, once the war was over, the scientists who built the weapon were split between Russia and the United States. One of the main inventors of this terror weapon was Werner von Braun, who was snatched up by the U.S., Braun helped get the space program started. Now, whether or not Von Braun was guilty of war crimes, well, that's a subject for a different podcast. So by the late 1950s, the Cold War between the U.S. and Soviet Union was in full swing. When the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1, the first artificial Earth satellite, into low orbit on October 4, 1957, the U.S. was in a panic. Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite, one of the great scientific feats of the age. See, the United States couldn't bear the thought of the Soviets beating us to anything. And, of course, there was the concern that the Soviets would use these satellites to, you know, spy on the U.S., so quickly, the U.S. put their own satellite into orbit, Explorer 1. Actually, it took two attempts, I believe, the first one exploding on the launch pad. But eventually, we got one up there, and the U.S. space program had begun. After sending a few animals into space, 
Manned spaceflight began with Project Mercury. The purpose of this program was to basically see if they could put a man into orbit and to see, you know, if his body could take it and whatnot. They chose seven astronauts to fly these missions, and they started with Alan B. Shepard's 15-minute and 28-second flight in Freedom 7, and it ended with Gordon Cooper's full day in space orbiting the Earth 22 times in Faith 7. The next step was Project Gemini. These missions would carry two-men crews up into space to learn and perfect all the things that would be needed to go to the moon, such as endurance tests, spacewalking, space rendezvous with another spacecraft, and all those type of things. For this, nine new astronauts were chosen, and one of these was Jim Lovell. Lovell was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. As a teenager, he became interested in rocketry. He attended the University of Wisconsin in Madison for two years and ended up with a Bachelor of Science degree. And then he was commissioned as an ensign in the Navy. On June 6, 1952, he married his high school sweetheart, Marilyn Lily Gerlach. And surprisingly, the two are still married today. That's a very rare thing among the original NASA astronauts. In 1958, Lovell graduated from the Navy's test pilot school and spent the next several years testing fighter aircraft and other jets before they were authorized for use by less experienced pilots. He was turned down as one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts for a medical reason, but then was selected for the Gemini program. Jim would fly two Gemini missions, Gemini 7, in which he spent 14 days in space with Frank Borman, and Gemini 12 with Buzz Aldrin, the last Gemini mission before Apollo. The Apollo program had the goal of sending three men into lunar orbit, with two of them landing on the moon. As many of you know, Apollo 1, sadly, ended in tragedy with the fiery deaths of Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Robert Chaffee. Apollo wouldn't carry another man into space until Apollo 7. Jim Lovell would fly on Apollo 8, in which he traveled to the moon without landing. He was one of the first people ever to see the far side of the moon. Jim's next flight was supposed to be Apollo 14, in which he would walk on the moon, and that takes us into our film. The biggest shock of this film was at the very beginning. Something they changed that, well, it's just beyond belief. It's a change in the actual events that I find inexcusable. We see Tom Hanks as Jim Lovell driving a red Corvette. Lovell didn't have a red Corvette. He had a blue Corvette. Okay, I know it's upsetting, but let it not ruin the rest of the film. The movie starts out at a party at the Lovell household to watch the first moonwalk of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. It's a nervous time. They're pacing around, smoking like chimneys. Gene Kranz is going to have puppies. Jim Lovell. Hi. This is Tracy. How do you do, Tracy? This, this is the man. Gemini 7, Gemini 12, Apollo 8. They were Stop the first ones flight. around the moon. This guy did 10 laps. With one hand on the wheel. You guys made yourselves at home. Hey, Marilyn. This party was a creation of the film. But it's understandable because it's a great way to quickly introduce all the characters. You know, you see Lovell as the charming husband and father. Jack Swaggart is played by Kevin Bacon, the bachelor with his young blonde girlfriend. According to Lovell, Swaggart always seemed to be dating someone new, usually a blonde. 
We also meet Bill Paxson as Fred Hayes, Gary Sinise as Ken Mattingly, and Catherine Quinlan as Marilyn Lovell, Jim's wife. The actual Lovell home is very close to accurate, as the filmmakers actually went to the real home to duplicate it, and many of the props in the house, like photos and awards and certificates hanging on the walls and frames and such, were taken from Jim Lovell or duplicated in the cases where they didn't want to risk taking something that's irreplaceable. The truth was, however, Jim Lovell was actually at the NASA Control Center watching the moonwalk. After the party, we see Hanks as Lovell putting his thumb over the moon. This was something that the real Jim Lovell would do. He did this on Apollo 8 looking back at the Earth, with the thought that everything he knows could be blocked by his thumb. Then there's a bit where both Marilyn and Jim are on the patio, and Jim climbs on top of his wife in a romantic moment. During the commentary, the real Jim Lovell asks the real Marilyn, Was I ever that romantic? And she responds, I'm not going to answer that, and they both laugh. Later, we see Lovell telling Marilyn that their trip to Acapulco will have to be canceled so he can go to the moon. Hey, everybody. Jim. Trick or treat. You know that Easter vacation trip we had planned for Acapulco? Uh Uh-oh. I was thinking uh, there might be a slight change in destination. Really? Maybe say... The moon. (gasps) While it is true that he was bumped up to Apollo 13 from Apollo 14, the canceling of the trip to Acapulco actually happened so he could travel to the moon on Apollo 8. There's a scene where Marilyn has a horrible dream about a disaster on Jim's flight to the moon. This was based on a real dream. Jim had made the mistake of taking her to see the film Marooned, a film about astronauts having problems in space, and they think that's what inspired the dream. By the way, you might have guessed that a lot of my knowledge of what's real and unreal on the film is from the commentary that both Jim and Marilyn Lovell do on the Blu-ray for Apollo 13. If you're interested at all on the real events of Apollo 13, I would suggest buying that Blu-ray. There's two commentary tracks, one by Ron Howard, one by Jim and Marion Lovell. And I just found it fascinating to hear the two people most involved giving their thoughts about what actually happened. It is true Marilyn feared the number 13, though she tried to hide it best she could, and she was determined not to go to the launch. But of course, she ended up being there. So I was looking at the kids' school schedule coming up. Yeah. It's a very busy week. Yeah. I'm thinking about not going to the launch. Well, hey, that looks like Marilyn Lovell. But it can't be. She's not coming to the launch. I heard it was going to be a hell of a show. Now, who told you that? Some guy I know. Now, the film really focuses on Jack Swaggart's ability to dock the command module to the lunar lander. We see him in the simulator trying to do it and killing the crew. And we also see him later aboard the ship with comments like, Swagger can't dock this thing. We don't have a mission. According to Lovell, that was totally overblown. If for some reason Swaggart couldn't dock the ship to the lunar module, both he and Fred Hayes were totally capable of doing it. So it was not that big of an issue. Come on, rookie. Park that thing. 
And then there's a scene where the night before the launch, the astronauts on one side of the road and the families on the other side of the road kept apart so the families wouldn't infect the astronauts with any kind of a cold or flu or anything. We can't go across that road. We don't want Daddy to get any of our germs and get sick in outer space, right? Hey, boys. Not giving your mom a hard time, are you? That was fictionalized. That never happened. That was something they did during the space shuttle years. But Ron Howard learned about that and thought it would make for a great scene. Now, one of the bits that was heavily criticized for being overly dramatic was the scene where Marilyn's wedding ring comes off and goes down the drain. This, according to Marilyn, actually happened. It wasn't in a small motel like in the movie, but at a beach house she was staying in. But she said this was one of the most traumatic events. She said, In all the years we've been married, my ring never has fallen off in the shower. And to me, I felt it was the worst omen of all, that everything was going wrong up to that moment. Right before the launch, we see a scene in which the crowd watching the launch is clapping. Right in front of Catherine Quinlan as Marion Lovell is the real Marion Lovell. Ron Howard, in his commentary, mentions the fact that when they got done filming that scene, the real Marilyn Lovell was crying. When he asked her what was wrong, she basically said, I never thought I'd have to live through that again. There's a scene in which Ken Mattingly gets out of his gold Corvette to watch the blast off. In reality, he was way too close. The closest one is allowed to be during a liftoff is three and a half miles away. The shockwave from the liftoff could actually kill a person if they were that close to the launch. But it made for a, a visually stunning scene. The Lovell daughter wasn't as into the Beatles as shown in the film. However, both Jim and Marilyn say they got her attitude right. In fact, Ron Howard said in his commentary that he based that scene on his own daughter and they sort of worked it out together. Most of the events during the explosion and right after are pretty close to accurate. Many of the conversations were taken from the actual recordings. Although the scene where Marion Lovell first learns about the accident and is on the phone with NASA, well, she didn't use the kind of language that Catherine Quinlan uses in the film. No, don't give me that NASA bullshit. I want to know what's happening with my husband. Catherine did apologize for using a bit of artistic license there, and Marilyn says that today they still both laugh about it together. Also, Jim Lovell says he thought the film gave a bum rap to the Grumman guy. You know, with that whole, we didn't design the lem for this or that, and he said the Grumman people were very helpful throughout the whole thing, so... And the whole Ken Mattingly trying to come up with a way to save power was very simplified. He was sort of a composite character of many people trying to solve that problem, though Ken did work on it extensively. Fred Hayes never accused Swaggart of giving him the clap. That was added, I guess, for a bit of humor. And that leads into the biggest fabrication of the whole film, one the surviving astronauts didn't appreciate. That's where Swaggart interrupts a conversation between Lovell and Hayes about how the numbers say that they're going to skip right off the Earth's atmosphere and fly out into space. Jack, they've got half the PhDs on the planet Houston working on says we're right on the money. And what if they had made a mistake, all right, and there was no way to reverse it? Do you think they would tell us? There's no reason for them to tell us. What do you mean they're not going to tell us? That's bullshit. All right, there's a thousand things that have to happen in order. We are on number eight. 
You're talking about number 692. And in the meantime, I'm trying to tell you we're coming in too fast. I think they know it, and I think that's why we don't have a goddamn reaction plan, all right? That's duly noted. Thank you, Jack. Ow! God damn it! Hey! Piece of shit! piece of shit's gonna get you all. All right. That's because that's the only thing we got left, Jack. And that, of course, turns into a huge argument. That never happened. The NASA astronauts are always trained to remain calm and work problems out. However, I think that Ron Howard wanted to show what the astronauts were feeling in the inside, and the only way he could do that was to create a scene like this to show it on the outside. He also hinted around in the commentary that something like this might have occurred even if the astronauts don't want to admit it. It ends with Tom Hanks saying, We're not going to go bouncing off the walls for 10 minutes because we're just going to end up right back here with the same problems. Trying to figure out how to stay alive. Where is this, Houston? Are we on Vox? No, we're not on Vox. Yeah, Houston, this is Aquarius. Go ahead. That was something he heard Jim Lovell say when people would ask him, did he ever panic? You know, I could go over every detail and say this is true and that's not true. I've pretty much just talked about the big ones. If you're interested at all, I would advise listening to the commentary tracks. It's very interesting. The Blu-ray also contains some documentary footage, some interviews, some making of stuff. There's a lot of extras on there that are worth watching. But it is probably one of the most truthful docudramas I've ever seen. So much of what one might think, oh, I'm sure that really happened, actually happened. And the thing is, there's a lot more that happened that wasn't shown in the film. But, you know, it's two hours and 20 minutes, so they couldn't possibly put in every event. And here's something you may not know. The term failure is not an option. The tagline for the film was actually never said. We never lost an American in space. We're sure as hell not going to lose one on my watch. Failure is not an option. Anyway, I'm going to take a little break at this point, and we're going to hear what Russell has to say about other films that deal with outer space. I wish I was a spaceman, the fastest guy alive. I'd fly you around the in fireball XL5 Way out in space together Conquers of the sky My heart would be a fireball A fireball Every time I gazed into your starry eyes Hello, Celluloiders. Russell again. To give today's epic broader context, we're going to take a look at other cinematic moonshots. Trips to the moon were a staple subject matter in early science fiction stories, and this bled through to the newly discovered flickers, where SPFX pioneers George Maley's lens the 17-minute silent epic Voyage Dan Lunes in 1902. This depicted top-hatted savants being shot to the moon in a great cannon and getting into strife for the unruly selenites they found there. In 1929, Fritz Lang made Die Frau im Monde, one of the last great silent films. In this, an intrepid scientist and his crew make the first moon landing. Lang replaced Malay's pantomime with scientific accuracy with a space launch so feasible that Goebbels later had the movie banned in case away German rocket secrets, and it even had the first countdown. The film also depicted weightlessness, a sand-strewn lunar surface, though at a dramatic license by depicting the moon with air. When questioned about this, Lang said, My performers cannot act in diving suits. 
Ukrainian director Vasily Zhurilov did Cosmic Rays in 1935. Amazingly, this was still a silent picture. Despite this foot in the past, the rest of the movie was well in the future, with giant rockets taking crews to the Selene Sphere. This time they had spacesuits. The film is most distinguished by its cast of acrobats performing amazing zero-g gyrations, far better than the wrenches on wires used in American 50s space movies, and stop-motion models of cosmonauts moonwalking. Not to be outdone, the Germans came up with Raumschiff 1 Startet, Spaceship 1 launches in 1937. Not giving away any space secrets this time, the rocket is a 436 pulp low inspired monster which takes off from a long ramp, an idea later used in When Worlds Collide, Fireball XL5 and the V1 rocket bomb. No, 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 not V1, don't mention the war. Despite the impressive hardware, we don't actually see any action on the spaceship and it just flies around the moon rather than land, though admittedly that is what happened to the first real trip to the moon in Apollo 8. All that Hollywood could muster in response to these space epics was Max Fleischer's animated cartoon Dancing on the Moon, which did at least use his revolutionary dimensional animation process, but in 1949 came George Powell's Destination Moon, the first of his series of classic sci-fi films which kicked off the 50s SF movie boom. Like the Lang film, Powell did his level best to craft a scientifically feasible story and hired top SF writer Robert Heinlein to craft the screenplay and advise on technical aspects. Artist Chesney Bonestell designed the rocket ship and did the movie's extensive matte moon paintings. The movie featured a privately funded moon project being blocked at the last minute by probable commie no-gooders, but the crew takes off anyway, landing on a moon of soaring mountains and cracked lava flows. In retrospect, this looked nothing like the real moon, but it was still being used as stock footage by Irwin Allen in 1968. After a bit of exploring and science experimentation, the crew realise they don't have enough fuel to get back, but cleverly unload enough surplus equipment to avoid disaster and return in triumph. This movie set the pattern for a decade of space expeditions, though few could match its verisimilitude. A typical example is Catwoman of the Moon from 1953, where Sunny Tufts leaves a cut-rate expedition where they find moon caves, space spiders and beatnik space women up to no good. Incredibly, this movie was remade almost shot to shot as Missile to the Moon in 1958 with exactly the same plot and also parody in 1987's Amazon Women on the Moon. Heinlein was back in 1953's Project Moonbase, actually a pilot film for an unmade TV series, where comedy space spies who don't know who the Dodgers are attempt to frustrate America's Spackham Moon Project. This was used as a classic early mystery science theatre experiment, which also featured an episode of Commando Cody's serial Radar Men from the Moon, where Bronson Canyon, complete with blue sky and clouds, stood in for the lunar surface, where no good aliens planned to conquer Earth with some oversized radio shack gadget. Again, this footage was also used in the 1977 fire sign theatre redub comedy J-Men Forever, where evil moon alien the Lightning Bug tries to conquer Earth with drugs and rock and roll. Back in the 50s, there was 1958's From Earth to Moon, a proto-steampunk adaption of Jules Verne's novel, which had inspired Malays half a century before. Verne had become bankable after Disney's wonderful 20,000 Leagues movie, but this is a very flat adaption and not even Joe Cotton can save it. The launch of Sputnik in 1957 led to a change of pace, a spaceflight left the realm of pop run to join the real world, not to mention the Cold War. 
Uh, 12 to the Moon, covered last week, is a product of new sensibility, where commies are as big a threat as hostile moon men, but the Russians were first off the mark again in 1959 with Naibo Zowat, a.k.a. The Sky Calls, from director Mikhail Karakov, which depicts elaborate space stations, moon bases and Mars stations, which were not outdone till Kubrick's 2001 a decade later. Footage from this and other Soviet space epics was recycled into Rog Corman low-budget space epics over the next decade. The moon became a battlefield in Japan's battle in outer space, where after a series of alien-caused disasters, the nations of Earth combine and launch attacks on the alien's moon base, and finally defeat their space fleet in a st stunning space battle not equal to Star Wars. 1960 saw the comedy Man in the Moon, where British film legend Kenneth Moore is a human guinea pig selected for the first moon flight and after a sort of amusing hijinks blasts off from the Australian rocket base at Woomera only to land a few miles away in the desert where he mistakes a swaggy for an alien. Again, Despite a charity premiere attended by Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth, the movie flopped. 1962 had another space comedy, the Disney effort Moon Pilot, where astronaut Trum Tryon fins off sexy space aliens and security agents to try and get his job done. Disney had earlier produced more worthy space movies for the Disneyland TV series in both live action animation with the aid of Werner von Braun. 1963 had another space comedy, but this one was actually funny. Mouse on the Moon was a sequel to the earlier Bolting Brothers' Mouse that Roared, a satire on the Cold War, which had been a big hit and a boost to Peter Sellers' career. Mouse on the Moon also satirised the Cold War, with the US and Soviets making token foreign aid assistance to the micro-country Grand Fenwick space program, but the wine-powered rocket from eccentric scientist David Kossoff actually works, and the US and Russians hurriedly launch their own. The cast is excellent, with Margaret Rutherford, Terry Thomas, John Lemessurier, Bernard Cribbins and Ron Moody. David Kossoff had earlier had his own moon adventures in radio's journey into space, while the US astronaut is played by future UFO star and 2001 Ares moon bus commander Ed Bishop. 1964's First Men on the Moon is a far more successful steampunk effort than the Verne film we mentioned earlier. Based on H.G. Wells' novel, it begins with a modern moon expedition discovering the remains of Victorian era expedition. On Earth, on Earth, they find Arnold Bedford in a nursing home who tells an expedition led by inventor Joseph Cavour, whose anti-gravity metal Cavorite allows a small space capsule to reach the moon. There, Cavour, Bedford and his fiancée Kate discover alien selenites, but feeling imprisonment, Bedford and Kate escape back to Earth. The movie has the wonderful SPFX of Ray Harryhausen and was co-scripted by Nigel Neal of Quatermass fame. Interestingly, First Men of the Moon had been made as a silent in 1919, but that film has long been lost. 1966 had Way Way Out with Jerry Lewis as a hapless astronaut on a lunar weather station, while in 1967 Spain produced a farce called Dos Cosmonauts El Fuerza, where Russian cosmonauts are feared lost just before they reach the moon, so duplicate astronauts are sent up to masquerade as them, but all four return at the same time. The 1977 thriller Capricorn One used a similar plot, but seriously. In 1968 came Countdown. This was a serious look at space flight, where the drama comes from the politicking and safety danger compromises, but despite the presence of stars James Kahn and Robert Duvall, and direction from Robert Altman, 
The movie comes across as very slow, and its use of Gemini and Apollo hardware dated it very quickly. 1969 saw 2001 A Space Odyssey, which needs no introduction, but in its wake came Moon Zero Two, the first space western, from Hammer of all people. This takes the old western clichés of acclaimed jumping magnate trying to rob a young girl and with only a lone pioneer to defend her, and puts them in a moon setting. Warren Mitchell, James Olsen and genre favourites Catherine Schell, Bernard Breslau and Adrian Corrie do what they can, but it's best seen in the Mystery Science Theatre version. The 70s and after saw moon-based shows relegated to TV with the likes of Moonbase Free and Space 1999, and more recently from Earth to Moon and For All Mankind. The end of the Apollo program saw the moon fade as a sci-fi subject, apart from the execrable Shape of Things to Come, a Superman 2 movie cameo, straight-to-video potboilers like 1998's Moontrap, and of course, today's historic adventure, Apollo 13. Quality moon movies returned, however, with 2009's The Moon, where lone astronaut Sam Bell, in charge of a mining project, makes a horrifying discovery, and the 2012 satirical comedy Iron Sky, where Nazis from a secret moon base return to wreak havoc on the Sarah Palin presidency. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Russell. Another trip down memory lane. A very interesting uh, tune you opened your bit with. Made me laugh a bit. Yeah, it is very interesting the way space travel in films has changed over time. Those cheesy effects from the past I don't think would hold water these days, but, you know, there was something charming about the way they were done in the past, and I still get a kick out of watching a lot of those films. Again, thanks, and I hope you're feeling better, Russell. I can't believe you did this four times. Worst part's over. It is? Listen... (laughs) This doesn't stop for me until he lands on that aircraft carrier. Oh, you just look so calm about it. Well, if the flight surgeon had to okay me for this mission, I'd be grounded. What kills me about this film was, you know, of course I knew the ending. I've seen quite a few documentaries about Apollo 13 over the years. I know they get back safely. I'm sorry if that's a spoiler. But somehow Ron Howard still managed to make a film that holds my attention and suspense all the way to the end. I think my favorite scene is the liftoff of the rocket. And it's also one of the scenes Ron Howard says he's most proud of. to Marilyn Lovell and Mary Hayes, as played by Tracy Rainier, it always gets me. I think the look on both of their faces is a reminder of not only is this a big deal for the astronauts and everybody in mission control, but also, and maybe even more so, for the loved ones who have to watch their nearest and dearest blast off into outer space, perhaps never to return. 
And Ron Howard also said that those 10 minutes contained every film trick in the book, from model work to actual footage to CGI, all of it. One of the most amazing parts of this film was NASA letting them use the KC-135, the reduced gravity aircraft. I know some people refer to this as the Vomit Comet. Anyway, the story goes like this. Just to get the feeling of weightlessness, they got to ride in the aircraft. The way it works is the large aircraft goes up to about 33,000 feet, and very quickly it travels downwards to about 24,000 feet in a parabolic flight path, resulting in about 22 seconds of weightlessness. Anyway, all the main actors, Hanks, Bacon, Paxton, along with Ron Howard and a few others, took a flight. It was a one-time thing, just so they would know how to act when they were actually making the film. But then, apparently, he was talking to Steven Spielberg, who suggested that they actually film the movie in one of those aircrafts. Ron Howard began to wonder if it would be possible to do so. It was executive producer Todd Hollenwell that began looking into it, and after a lot of negotiation, eventually got permission. The interior of the spacecraft was built in the plane, and over and over, for at least about 600 times, they shot 22-second takes as the KG-135 dove towards the Earth. Anytime you see an entire actor's body floating, it was done on the plane. Other shots were done in the studio with just the actors weaving back and forth or sometimes on a little platform, sort of like a teeter-totter just to get the motion correct. In fact, they had so much help from NASA, it was incredible. Bill Paxton took home movies of them touring NASA and training, and you can find those home movies on YouTube. NASA actually offered Howard the use of the control room that was used back in the late 60s and early 70s, and apparently it's still in the same condition as it was back then, but Ron Howard declined. One reason was that it was on the third floor, but I think also he wanted room for his big camera to do those sweeps that you see often in the movie. But he did build the set exactly like the real control room, so much so that when the real astronauts were there, they forgot that they weren't on the third floor and expected to see stairs when they left the room. One of the big decisions Ron and his team made was not to use any of the actual NASA footage. That had been their first thought, but after going through it all, they decided it would be better to recreate everything using a combination of models and CGI animation. Ron Howard also wanted to give some views that couldn't have been filmed, like the rocket heading towards the camera, as if the camera's in a helicopter or something. It came out so good that Buzz Aldrin, after seeing the footage, asked Ron where they found those extra shots. He wanted to know if some unused footage was recovered. Ron explained that it was all a creation of the filmmakers, and Buzz asked if he could actually use the footage. The film was based on Jim Lovell's book, Lost Moon. The thing was, the bidding war for the rights to the book began after Lovell had only written the first chapter. He even asked his agent, how can people be bidding on a book that I haven't written yet? And the winner, Brian Grazer and Ron Howard for Imagine Entertainment. The first draft of the script was written by William Broles Jr. and Al Renhart. The team wrote the script with Kevin Costner in mind, but when Tom Hanks heard about the film, he took immediate interest asking to see a copy of the script. 
Apparently, he had talked about making a film based on Apollo 13 years earlier. You see, Tom had a lifelong fascination with the space program ever since he was a small boy. He had collected all the models of the spacecraft and knew all the astronauts by name. He had always dreamed of playing an astronaut. He said the scene where the three astronauts are all dressed in their spacesuits and they're walking, carrying their life support in their hands, was a dream come true. And what can you say about Tom Hanks? He's, he's wonderful, but he is in everything, isn't he? Uh, this is Houston. Uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. We have a main bus B undervolt. We've got a lot of thruster What's activity here, Houston. Now? It just went offline. Oh, there's another master alarm, Houston. Well, the thing that gets me, especially in this film, is how we can say so much without saying a word of dialogue. And he spent time with Jim Lovell to learn all he could. Things like the bouncing off the wall speech was inspired by talking to Lovell. And Lovell was known as one of the easiest going astronauts in NASA, so Tom Hanks was perhaps the perfect choice. Much of the cast spent time with their counterparts, all but Kevin Bacon. That was because Jack Swaggart died in 1983 of respiratory failure. I'm not going to go through the whole cast. All of them, Bill Paxton, Gary Sinise, Ed Harris, Kathleen Quinlan, everybody. They're all wonderful. And they were all excited about being in the film and worked hard to get their characters right. According to Bill Paxton, after Ron Howard called him to let him know he was going to play Fred Hayes, he and his wife danced all over the house. A couple of the actors I will point out are members of the Howard family. Gene Spiegel Howard, Ron Howard's real mother, played Blanche Lovell, Jim Lovell's mother. My son's supposed to be on. He's in outer space. I've been accused of receiving... This is all the channels we get, Mrs. Lovell. It's that damn TV guide again. Rance Howard, Ron's real father, played the Lovell family minister. You see him with the gang at the Lovell household right before the splashdown. According to Ron, he had a scene on the telephone, but it ended up on the cutting room floor. Come on, Ron, cutting your dad's big scene? Really? And, of course, there is the one and only Clint Howard. He plays electrical, environmental, and consumables manager Cy Labregat. And I hope I pronounce his name right. The thing is, I see Clint in so many weird roles, like Evil Speak, Ice Cream Man, and Rock and Roll High School, that it's fantastic to see him play not only a serious role, but an important role in the film. I mean, he's the one who has to tell Gene Kranz to shut down all the fuel cells, ending the moon mission. Um, Clyde, I recommend we uh, shut down the reactant valves of the fuel cells. What the hell good is that going to do? That's where the leak is. We can isolate it. We can isolate it there and we can save what's left in the tanks and we can run on the good cell. You close them, you can't open them again. You can't land on the moon with one helping fuel cell. Gene, the Odyssey is gone. But my chair here, this is the last option. And the thing about Clint Howard, though, as long as his brother's making films, I guess he'll always get work. If I had one complaint about this movie, and it is a minor complaint, it's the music. I mean, for the most part, it's wonderful, and I think James Horner did a fantastic job. But I think that choir stuff, you know, this kind of thing. I don't know, I 
thought it was used too much. I think it's sort of a cheat in a way. I don't know, I could be wrong. You know, at this point, I usually turn to Rotten Tomatoes, but I went in and looked at them and a large percentage gives it four or five stars and says it's one of the best films ever made, blah, blah, blah. And the few negative ones were just people saying, well, it's not my type of movie, that sort of thing. So I'm gonna skip that today. You know, Jim Lovell is still alive, and last I heard, he lives at least part of the year in Lake Forest, Illinois, which is not too far from where I live. I drive through Lake Forest all the time. For a while, he owned a restaurant in Lake Forest called The Lovells of Lake Forest. It featured a lot of memorabilia from Lovell's time at NASA and the making of Apollo 13. Unfortunately, the restaurant closed in 2015. You know, for years after the flight of Apollo 13, he seemed, I don't know, bitter or angry over the fact that he never got a chance to walk on the moon, his lifelong dream. But I saw an interview with him not too long ago where he seems to have made peace with what happened. He finally realized that because of the failed mission, so many good things happened in his life. Sometimes I wonder what strange fate brought me out of the storm to that house that stood alone in the shadows. As I probed into its mysteries, every clue told me a different story. But each had the same ending, murder. Every instinct warned me to beware that something more dangerous, more deadly than I'd ever known before was in that room. And suddenly, I like that. I'd like more. A little bit before I go. Soon after Apollo 13, the film, Tom Hanks produced and starred in the Emmy Award-winning docudrama miniseries From Earth to the Moon. If you've never seen it, I highly recommend it, especially if you have interest in the space program. What is interesting is when they got to Apollo 13. Since the movie had only been out a few years before, the episode instead focuses on the changing of media. We see the old-time suit-wearing reporters who do as they're told and pretty much kiss the ass of NASA. And then there's the new young hippie-ish reporter who will do anything to get a story, no matter how sneaky or underhanded it may be. It was an interesting take. Anyway, if you've got any thoughts or opinions on Apollo 13, either the movie or the real-life tragedy, I'd like to hear it. You can send your thoughts to daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. Email me your thoughts, opinions, suggestions, whatever, even just to say hi. You can use our Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days. And we have a Twitter page. It's at celluloid underscore days. Next week, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite films. I know this was one of my favorites also, but I'm going to go way back to a, to a film based on a Raymond Chandler novel, and that's The Big Sleep, starring Humphrey Bogart. Some think that that might be the best film noir ever made. Let's find out. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Take care. Thanks, Russell, and I'll be back next Monday. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? 
The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Multi-pass. Lena, uh, multi-pass. You know, it's multi-pass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing 